John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, as we talk for a few minutes about this word that we've just read together and, and heard together, about this uh, strange and alluring thing that happened to Jesus. Father, we ask that you would meet us all uh, wherever we are, however we feel about ourselves and you, whether we have faith or don't. Father, meet us and show us how much you love us in Jesus. Show us uh, his glory in love. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, the other day uh, I read a a mild little rant online uh, about the NFL game that was played last night between the Chiefs and the Dolphins. It was a little protest, but it wasn't a protest about the game, really. Uh, It was not a protest about how cold it was going to be when the game was played. It wasn't a protest about one of the, the players or the coaches or even about a certain pop singer who may be in attendance. Uh, It was a protest against the fact that it was being streamed on a service that required a subscription. Uh, The writer was suggesting that he wasn't going to watch it because it it was on a subscription service and he was implying that other people shouldn't either. It was a protest uh, against paying money to see an NFL playoff game on TV. And uh, in that way, really, I guess when you boil it down to its essence, it was a protest against an American business trying to find new revenue streams. And I read and I thought, well, good luck, man, good luck. <laughs> I mean, I, I am uh, I'm fond of dissent, to be honest, probably more fond of it than I should be. Protest is fine with me. But I also think, look, uh, some ships have already sailed, <laughs> and one needs to choose one's protests wisely. And church, I guess that's why... That's why the starkness and and the plainness of the beginning of Mark's gospel is always such a mysterious and captivating wonder to me. I mean, Mark, Mark skips all of the beautiful adornments, all of the poetic theologizing of the other gospel writers. And when the curtain raises in Mark's gospel, it raises over a wildly unlikely protest movement happening out in the wilderness. It just seems so unlikely, like it's, it's not going to work. Like the ship has already sailed on this thing. John appeared. 
baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark says that John was clothed with uh, camels here. He wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And here was a sermon. After me comes the one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Church, everything in this picture, everything in it, the location of what's happening, what, what John was doing in that location, how he looked when he was doing that thing in that location, and what he ate when he was taking a break, all of that stuff, all of it conspires together to tell us something very important. This man and this movement are a descent against the dominant order of the day. They are a descent. He is a living protest. John is not in the halls of power. He is not in the temple. He is not in the palace of the king. He's not in a city. He's not in a little town. He's not even in a village. He is in the wilderness. He's just out in the desert somewhere by the Jordan River. And he's telling everyone that they need to repent. (laughs) That they need to turn away from everything in their lives that is not fitting. Everything in their lives that is not right. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why I say this is an unlikely thing. It is an unusual thing for anyone, really, anywhere, if we're being honest, to be told we're doing something wrong and we ought to stop. It's even more unusual for anybody to make a trek out into the wilderness, out into the desert, to a guy who looks just a couple stops shy of unhinged, to have he, him be the one who tells you you're doing something wrong and you ought to stop doing it. Everything about this is unlikely. And yet here we are. Something about what John was doing, something about what he was saying struck a chord deep in the consciousness of God's people because Mark tells us that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem, they were making that trek out there into the wilderness and they were confessing their sins and they were being baptized in the Jordan River as a sign of the forgiveness that God offered them. And here's something, church, that's easy to overlook, but we're not going to overlook it. It's not as if God's people didn't already have a place that they could go to to confess their sins and to hear that they're forgiven. They did have a place. It was called the temple. But John is calling them out, away from that, out into the wilderness away from the temple, away from the priests, away from the scribes, away from the mighty ones, away from the powerful ones. And it made those guys furious, by the way. And of course it did, because that was part of the point. The point was dissent against the prevailing order of things. The point was protest against the stuff that was eating them alive. And I think the audacity of it, the hope of it, that's what drew people out there like moths to a flame. They didn't know where all of this was headed. They just knew, they knew that it smelled like life out there in the wilderness, like real life. And maybe this is pointing out the obvious, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) We live in a dominant order that can eat us alive too. The dominant order that says that we belong solely to ourselves. 
And that places us under the overwhelming and unbearable burden of thinking that everything is up to us all of the time, that our meaning, our purpose, our significance, our worth, it's all up to us. That we've absolutely got to get out there and self-justify and self-promote. You better get on that stuff and you better stay on that stuff because you belong to yourself. That dominant order lies to us all the time. It says that consuming things and consuming experiences, that's going to be what makes you happy. It tells us lies like that people who are hard to be around, difficult people, they aren't worth your time and they aren't worth your limited energy and resources. That dominant order lies to us. It says what we want as individuals. What we want maybe is our little sacred tribe. That's what's the most important thing. And there, we should never allow our wills to be crossed. No one should ever get to tell us what to do. And if it does, if that happens, we should resist it with all of our angry might. We're bombarded with this dominant order every place all of the time everywhere it's like the air we breathe in church it's killing us it's killing us it's eating us alive as a people we're tired and we're cynical and we're scared and we're angry it doesn't smell much like life but there is a protest movement afoot church <laughs> there is a dissent happening a descent that offers unbelievable freedom. Freedom from learning that we don't belong to ourselves. And that everything isn't all up to us. A descent that says that giving of ourselves, giving our things away, not consuming, giving of ourselves is what leads to happiness and what leads to meaning in this life. A descent that says even the most difficult people, even the hardest people, are the worthy objects of love. And thank God for that, right? A descent that says that the good of this world is far more important than just my good. A descent and a protest that says that we actually grow and change and learn and become who we were meant to be if we allow our wills to be crossed. A descent that says we don't save our lives by acquiring. We save our lives when we lose them. That protest smells like life. Because it is life. So in those days, Mark says, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. <laughs> and as, uh, as introductions go, that one is pretty inauspicious. Nazareth was this tiny little town made up of perhaps 500 people at that time. Fishing families, farming families. Mark makes sure that we know it's from the northern part of the country, from Galilee. The northern part had a reputation in Jesus' day for being populated with really simple people who spoke in an accent that made them hard to understand. That's the nicest way to put it. What people really said about the north wasn't great. The sophisticates, the urbanites of Jerusalem and Judea, they didn't, they didn't have much good to say about Galilee. And Mark wants us to know, just so you don't miss it, that's where Jesus comes from. He comes quietly from Nowheresville. He comes quietly to the wilderness, and there he joins the protest. 
But that isn't the right way to say it, is it? That's not exactly what's happening out there. I mean, that's what it looked like to pretty much everybody who was there that day. Nobody knew who Jesus was except for John that day. John was the celebrity. John was the one that everyone was coming out to see. And Jesus just looked like someone who came from the North Country to be a part of that movement out there in the wilderness. But John, John knew better that day, and so do we. Jesus did not come to join John's protest movement because it wasn't John's protest movement to begin with. It was Jesus' movement. It was his descent. It was his protest, church, his protest against all of the things that eat us alive, against everything that is broken and bent and stained in his good world. And church, precisely because it was Jesus, and only, only because it was Jesus and his movement, and only because it was him who showed up that day, you can be absolutely sure that nothing was going to stand up against his protest. Everything would fall, even when it cost him everything. And then Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. (laughs) Now if you hear that and you ask, why in the world does Jesus need to be baptized as a sign of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Why does that have to happen? If you're asking why, why would Jesus ever submit himself to that baptism? Why would, he, why would he ever think that he needed to submit himself to that baptism? If you're thinking, why would John ever let something like this happen, then good. You are barking up the only tree there is. We know from Matthew's gospel that that's exactly what John was thinking at the time. And this gets us, church, to the heart of things. This gets us to the glory made manifest in Jesus' baptism. This gets us to the epiphany out there by the Jordan River. And it's this. Jesus numbers himself with sinners. He offers no qualifications. He shows no hesitations. He just gets in line with the rest of the sinners. And he goes under the water like everybody else. And I am pretty sure that that is probably the best thing any of us are going to hear today. (laughs) Jesus numbers himself with the sinners. He, He throws his lot in with people like you and me. He goes under the water for people like us. Jesus shows solidarity with us. I know sometimes things can get dark. I know how it is. And sometimes you wonder if God loves you. You know, you think you messed up one too many times. You think you did that one thing that's too much that you hope no one ever finds out about and you don't know if you can be redeemed. I know we do things to harm ourselves. People have done stuff to us to harm us and we get so turned around and we get so messed up that we can't imagine anyone ever loving us. Let alone God. And I'm telling you, church, the next time you're tempted to think that or to feel that, the next time you think that, or feel that. I want you to remember Jesus standing where it made no sense at all for him to stand except for love. Love is the only thing that explains it. On the banks of the Jordan, he stands shoulder to shoulder with you. And he steps into that water ahead of you. And he does it because he loves you. 
for the first time here, he steps in, but by no means for the last time. He steps in at his death on the cross. He steps in at his resurrection. He steps in ahead of us at his ascension. He steps in for you and for me, as the author of Hebrews says, to bring many daughters and many sons to glory. And to follow him in repentance and faith is to be hidden in him. It's to be able to go where he has gone before us. It is to change, to be able to begin to love like he has loved us. And fortunately, you don't have to take my word for any of it. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to believe that and let it sink into you because I'm up here saying it. There was a far better and more sure word that was spoken about all this that day. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You, the son who numbers himself with the sinners. You, the son who stands in solidarity and steps in where they cannot go. You're the son. You are beloved. And I'm pleased with you. I mean, you can think about those words every day for the rest of your life. You would never get to the bottom of them. And I just want to say this one thing about them. If it's true that Jesus stepped in and bound the destinies of those who follow him by faith up into his own destiny, then these words don't just have a profound meaning for Jesus that day. I mean, certainly they had a profound meaning for him. But being united with Jesus means they have a profound meaning for me and for you too. If, as we heard the Apostle Paul wrote in that New Testament lesson, if our lives are hidden in Jesus' life, then what is true of Jesus is true of us too. It means that the Father sees us as we are in Jesus. And that means that the Father says to us what he said to Jesus at his baptism, you're my child and I love you and I'm pleased with you. I mean, we take on a lot of names in life. We take on a lot of labels, but I'm telling you, church, there's only one that matters in the end, and it's because of the one who spoke it. It's the one we get because Jesus stood shoulder to shoulder with us, in solidarity with us. In him, we're the beloved. You are the beloved in him. That's Jesus' glory made manifest, church. That's his glory. That's the epiphany that day. That's what makes Jesus worthy of your praise and mine forever. Because in deep in humility and in deep love, he steps in, he takes on everything that stands against us, and he gives us his good name. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask... <laughs> preeminently that you would help us to believe. That you would help us to see that glory made manifest in that strange protest out on the banks of the Jordan River. That we would see the glory of the sun that you are well pleased with it, pleased with. And that we would by faith see ourselves as those who hear those same words from you. 
Father, we ask that you would do this so that we could strengthen in our faith, so that we could grow and mature in our faith. And we ask it so that we could be a people through whom you show that same kind of love to this whole broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.